You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. If you will follow along in your Bibles as I read, um, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, but I'm actually going to begin at verse 3. Because verse 3 through 12 in the original language is actually one big sentence. And follow along with me. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That is a doozy, doozy of a passage. A few months ago, we spent our family vacation out in West Texas. I'm originally from West Texas, from Midland. Uh, We went out to far West Texas, even, even deeper into the West uh, which is basically just, if you've ever been there, it's, a, it's basically just scorching desert. That's, that's what it is. It's just scorching desert. And we'd go walking in these desert mountains as a family, and you couldn't help but notice just how dry and hot the land was. But there were these plants as you'd walk, these, these beautiful, thriving plants. There's little to no rain for much of the year, Yet as you walk in the middle of nowhere, there would be these beautiful, blooming plants. And you just couldn't help but, but think about how do those little, puny, weak-looking plants survive? How do they 
keep producing beautiful, blooming flowers in the midst of such scorching conditions. And then you remember something, or if you're there, you learn something. You learn about their roots. You learn about these little plants who have this incredible root system that's like double or triple the size of normal plants in the city. These urban plants don't have anything on these rural plants, right? They, they double the size of these, these normal plants, that, that these, these roots that, that stretch wide into the ground around them, and they, they permeate deep into the depths below them so that they can then endure and bloom beautifully in the midst of horrific conditions. Because they're well-rooted. The Christian life in this sin-broken world, and we've heard this before in Thessalonians, but the Christian life in this sin-broken world is like being a little desert plant in the midst of the desert wilderness. Living in the harshest conditions possible, a dry and scorched land. Listen to these statistics from the past year about Christians living in a desert land. 312 million Christians in the world experienced, this is last year, experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination for being a Christian. One in seven Christians worldwide experienced high levels of persecution. One in seven saints. Last year alone, 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. 3,829 Christians were abducted from their families and homes. 5,110 churches and Christian-owned buildings were destroyed. And 4,765 believers were detained unfairly, without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And those are just the, the numbers that we know of. The one that really grabs me is one in seven. One in seven. The Christian life is lived in a desert wilderness. Suffering, affliction, trouble is experienced. And though you may not, you may not be thinking right now, like, that's not my life. You know, I just, I, I, I'm not experiencing suffering now. But here's, here's the reality. The odds are that as long as you're a believer and you live life in this world, as long as you're living in this world, at some point you're in the desert. And so at some point there will be some form of suffering or affliction or trial or trouble that will come upon you. At some point. But today's passage is a rooting passage. It's a rooting passage. It's packed full of life-giving truth that the Christian is meant to plant their roots into and find life-giving hope that enables them then to endure and bloom a life of beautiful praise in the midst of living in a dry and weary and scorching land. That's what the passage is for us today. These verses from, from last week even to this week and even in the coming week are meant to sturdy the Christian. They're meant to sturdy you in the midst of affliction 
and suffering by helping us to see what God is doing in the Christian's life in the midst of suffering. What is God doing in the midst of the suffering? And then this, this passage also is working to then encourage us and sturdy us by helping point the hope of our hearts to the day coming when Jesus' will, when Jesus's rescue will be complete. That's what this passage is doing. So, so may the Lord, by His Spirit, root your faith deep in His Word today that you may be one of those little Desert plants blooming beautiful praise in the midst of the scorching desert. Amen? May that be so. So first thing, look at your Bibles. First thing we see in this passage in verse 5 is this. God's evidence and the Christian's suffering. God's evidence and the Christian's suffering. As Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonian church, if you remember last week in verses 3 through 4, we saw how he is celebrating God continuing to grow these Christians in maturing faith and love, and he celebrated their perseverance in the faith in the midst of great persecution and affliction. And so after recognizing this work of grace in the Christian's life, he then makes this statement in verse 5 in regards to their growing and remaining in the faith despite the affliction and the suffering. He says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. That's a line that sort of makes us ponder for a moment. What does he mean? (laughs) You read that, this evidence of God's righteous judgment. what, What is he trying to say here? What does that mean? Well, it's almost as if Paul begins to use courtroom type of language. Courtroom type of language. So think of it like this. Take your minds there for a moment. Imagine a court and a judge who is presiding over a trial. And, and what happens at a trial? What happens there? Evidence is presented before the judge, isn't it? Evidence is presented before the judge and for all present, everyone near to see Evidence that either proves the innocence of someone or it's evidence that proves their guilt. But either way, there is to be evidence that affirms the judgment the judge is going to make, right? And so when Paul, what Paul is doing in these verses is holding up evidence for the righteous judgment of God that he's about to talk about in the following verses, that in God's righteous judgment, he's going to inflict the most horrendous punishment on some, and yet for others, grant incredible relief. And what Paul is doing is laying out this evidence. He's holding up evidence of the Christian's enduring faith in the midst of affliction as proof. He's holding up evidence of the Christian's enduring and growing faith in the midst of affliction as proof that they really do belong to the kingdom of God, that their faith is genuine faith. And it's being proven 
by their willingness to suffer for following Jesus. It's being proven by their, by their perseverance in the faith. It's evidence that their hearts really do belong to the kingdom. Because here's the truth, and we've heard this before in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, that because those who don't really love Jesus, when it comes to suffering for Jesus, do you think they're going to hang around? No. No one wants to suffer for somebody I really, really, truly don't care about. And so for those that are being afflicted for their faith and yet growing and remaining in the faith and continuing to sing praise to Jesus and continuing to want more of Jesus, it is proof that they actually belong to Jesus. And for those that are doing the affliction, every moment of their rejecting Jesus and rejecting Jesus' people is being stored up as evidence for their destruction. Paul describes this in Philippians 1, because it can be a little bit tricky of a passage to kind of grasp onto, but he describes this in Philippians 1, and I think it serves us to use the word to help interpret the word. So, so look at this here. In Philippians 1, it'll be up on the screen, verses 27 to 28. Listen to this. It's, it, you're going to hear it's, gonna, it's very similar. Listen to what he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Listen, this is a clear sign. Boom, there's the evidence. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. So they're, they're living life in a manner that is according to, the, according to and worthy of the kingdom, along with their persevering faith in the midst of affliction and trial, is a clear sign. It's evidence of their being genuine believers. It's a clear sign of their salvation. And for those opposing and frightening God's people, it is a clear sign or evidence of their coming destruction. So enduring suffering or affliction or trouble isn't a sign of God's rejection. Can't we be tempted with feeling that way? Can't we be tempted all throughout Scripture, be tempted in in, in present day, feeling tempted as if, why am I going through this then? Don't I belong to the God of the universe? Aren't I His precious people? then why am I going through trial? Why am I being afflicted in this moment? Right, and we know, you, precious saints, you've heard me. I know we have visitors this morning. Precious saints, if you've been here, you know, on, on one side, the prosperity gospel says, yeah, I, I agree. We shouldn't be going through affliction. We shouldn't be going through trial. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible's saying, no, something's happening. God's using, somehow using the trial you're experiencing Somehow he's doing something divine in the midst of it, precious saints. Somehow, somehow. So the enduring suffering and affliction isn't a sign of God's rejection, even though that's often how we feel. Instead, what the word is declaring is it's actually a sign of God's acceptance, of God's receiving you. Oh, man, it begins, it's, it's like Paul is taking our theology of suffering, our understanding and belief of suffering, and just going, right? Just turning it upside down. 
Because aren't I supposed to live my best life now? Isn't that what should be happening right now? Right? Isn't that what we hear, the echoes and whispers of the world and all this false gospel stuff? It is. It is. We can't love the world and love God at the same time. Matthew 6 clearly says that. For those who love the passions and pleasures of this world, they actually will be rejected by God, is what the Word tells us. But those that love God, they will experience rejection of the world. Tuck that away into your hearts right now, precious saints. For those who love God, you will, at some point, be rejected by the world. Hide that in your hearts. Because as you endure suffering, I don't want, we don't want it. We long to not, not want it to all of a sudden catch you off, off you're surprised, off guard. No, for those who love God, at some point, they will experience rejection by the world. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what will happen? They'll have mansions here on earth. They'll have a nice car. They'll have other... No, they will be persecuted. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In turning from the wickedness of the world... We will be rejected and counted as unworthy and unwelcome members of society. But though we be rejected here and now, we are being counted as worthy and welcome members of the coming kingdom of Christ. And isn't that good news? Oh, my. So though the enemy would tempt you to despair and tempt you to think this suffering is revealing that God has rejected us, no, yeah, no, no. The Bible declares, declares something else. The Bible says, no, no. Your suffering as a Christian is revealing of your being received by God and your being rejected by the world. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15. We'll have it up on the screen. These are Jesus' words. Our precious Savior to you. To you, they, they echo to his disciples and they echo to the church today. Listen, listen to his word. Listen to the voice of your Savior. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If, you. if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Sweet words. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Peter, echoing the words of our Savior, said this in 1 Peter, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We, grieving is reality for the Christian. Lament, grieve, all that, that's real for us. It doesn't mean we don't cry when, we're, when we endure dr- trouble. So if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Saints, just hide in your heart right now. The Lord can use our suffering, and He does. He does. 
This frees us from wanting to be accepted and loved by the world. Don't we all feel that? In the workplace, in school, in our neighborhoods, all of it. We want to be accepted by the world. I want to be loved by people. And when they don't love us, it kills us. There was a point before I was a pastor where I remember getting a job and I walk into the job and from day one for months, they would just say, hey, Jesus. Oh, hey, Jesus. And then they would act like they were praying to me. Hey, Jesus. The rejection of the world. But months later, you have lunch break come and one of those men comes. Hey, can we talk? And they want to talk about their broken marriage. And they need help and hope. And where do they come? To the family of Christ. Rejection. The Lord is using our rejection and our suffering. But we will, you will receive suffering and, and, and rejection. So it frees us from trying to be accepted by the world. It frees us from wanting that. It frees us from fearing rejection or affliction. It frees us from despair when we endure tribulation. And it compels us to endure affliction faithfully, knowing that this, it is a great proving ground or refiner's fire, according to Peter, where genuine faith is purified and revealed. But the hope of the Christian is not solely in the fact that God is using our suffering for good. It is there, but it's not only there. The hope of the Christian also is that one day, God in His righteous justice will cause the suffering to stop. That there is a day He will give relief to His people while repaying those who caused the suffering of His people. That's what we see next. So look at your Bible. In verses 6 through 7, we see God's justice and the Christian's relief. God's justice and the Christian's relief. He says in verses 6 through 7, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And when will this take place? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This passage, this passage makes it clear that the Lord wants his people to know that though we experience rejection and suffering and every form of injustice, now he is not absent of your affliction, precious saints. He is not absent. He cares about it all because he loves his people and he cares about what is right. That's what this, this verse says. He cares about what is right. He considers it just. He cares about what is just. Have you ever experienced injustice? Oh, boy. Have you ever experienced injustice? Have you, have you ever seen it happen to someone you love? And how does it make you feel? When you see sin come upon sin and it's just, it's just wronging someone, how does, it, how does it make you feel? How does it land upon you? It makes you sick, doesn't it? It makes you sick. You feel helpless. I remember there was a, there was a point my family... My dad was born and raised in Mexico, and there was a point we wanted to go back and visit family. I was a little, little guy. And we go, and we're, we're trying to get to where we need to go, like middle Mexico. And there was this point, at that point, it wasn't safe to travel. And, but we're driving, we're going, and there was a point where 
were stopped by military police-looking men, and I'm this little guy, there's this little tyke in the back seat, and, and they pull up my dad at gunpoint, and they were not going to release him unless he paid them. We're in the middle of nowhere, no one to help. I'm looking at my dad, gunpoint, outside of the car, What's going to happen? My dad's going to be killed here in the middle of nowhere. What is going to happen to us? We don't even have money, but they want all of our money. And so they essentially rob us. Those who are supposed to be securing us and taking care of us, making sure we get to where we need to be safely, is robbing my dad. As a young boy, I remember seeing that and feeling hopeless and helpless. Where's, where's, we, we could be tempted to say when we see those moments, where's the justice? Where is God's just and righteous hand upon this injustice, this sin that rules this wicked world? And we feel helpless. So why are these verses important for Christians? Christians in Thessalonica and for us today, because we can be so tempted when we see sin Reigning in a sense, it looks as if it's ruling the land and we're, we're feeling the effects of it. It, it, it kind of butts up against our lives and we feel the pain of it. And we can be tempted to say, God, where is your justice? Where are you in the midst of this? If you've ever experienced suffering, you know. You know the temptation. If you've ever seen injustice, you know. God, don't you care? Where is the justice for this moment? It's not right that I'm hated by that person at work when I've never done anything wrong to them. It's not right that people can just blatantly lie to me about others or lie about me to others. It's not right when I'm accused of something I didn't do. It's not right that a little child gets taken away at the playground by some stranger. It's not right that, the Christ, that Christians all over the world are having to sing praise in a dark enclosed room in whispers because if they sing too loud, they'll be arrested and they'll never see their families again. It's not right, Lord. It's not right when your people are tied to a pole and lit on fire because they love you and they want people to know your word and so they're translating your word and what do they do? They get lit on fire and, and hung to a pole. How is that right? And the Christian lives life in this. And they can say, don't you care about justice, Lord? And you know what this verse says? You know what this verse does for the heart of the Christian? It says, yes, I do. Yes, I do care about injustice. Yes, I do care about what's broken in this world and the pain that you feel when the affliction rushes upon you. Yes, I do care. And true justice is coming soon. That's what that, that, these verses say. Jesus cares about the injustice. And you know what? Jesus doesn't just care about the injustice. He feels the injustice. He feels it. In Acts 9, we get a perfect picture of that. Saul, do you remember Saul? Who's, we're told he's breathing murderous threats against God's people, hunting them down to be murdered. Christians being hunted by Saul to be murdered and he's on his way to Damascus to, to capture more Christians. And what happens? Do you remember? He's met on the road by our Lord Jesus himself. 
and it, and it throws him off of his horse onto the ground, blinding him. And he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I thought it was Christ's people who were being persecuted. It is. But how does Jesus talk about it? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord, perceiving? It is, it is someone great and grand. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Our Savior doesn't just know your, your pain. He doesn't just know your affliction. He shares in your affliction. He's not impersonal to your pain and suffering of his people. He takes it personal upon him. So for every moment of injustice that has been experienced in this present sin-broken world, I know the world, the world twists all of that. They say, that's unjust, and, and this is what true justice is, and the reality is they're celebrating what's evil, and they're hating what is good. They don't even know what true justice looks like. Jesus says, oh, there's justice coming upon everyone. For every moment of injustice that has been experienced in this present sin-broken world where it seems as if the wicked, the wicked rule and they get their way and prosper in their evil, there will be a day when King Jesus comes again and he will bring about God's righteous justice where he will repay every single wrong because he considers it right. That's what this verse tells us. He considers it right. He considers it just to repay with affliction those who now cause the affliction and to grant the afflicted the assurance of sweet relief. Do you, know, do you know that word relief? I know we could just say, oh, relief, that's wonderful. But it literally, literally means rest from trouble. The Lord sees it just to come to the afflicted and give them rest from trouble. Aren't those sweet words? So then, we ourselves can rest assured today of the coming rest from trouble from our precious Savior. And we then can resist the temptations to repay evil for evil. Evil that's been done against us and instead give ourselves to doing good that reflects Christ in this wicked desert world. Listen to the word of God, Romans 12. Paul, in his letter to the, to the Roman church, says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you. And notice he says, he, says, he doesn't say, give thought to do what is honorable in sight of other Christians who love you. He says, give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all, those even causing the affliction. He goes on, he says, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. These are terrifying words. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do, precious saint? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. They won't even know why they hate you in that moment. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In God's righteous justice, we can entrust vengeance to him and know that he will bring about his perfect judgment as the good and righteous judge that he is. And in the following verses, we're given a picture of just what that day will look like. Look at your Bibles, verses 8 through 10. We see God's judgment and the Christian's joy. God's judgment and the Christian's joy. On that day when when King Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, it'd be easy in this passage to just unpack a theology of hell, right? But remember, the aim of why Paul is writing this is for the Christian to be encouraged and sturdied and not shaken. The Christian is to live with the reality of eternity written upon our hearts. The Christian is to live in the reality, not just of their pain and suffering present day, but the reality of what awaits in eternity. That's what is to be written upon the Christian's heart. The reality that the king is coming. Our king is coming. My king is coming. And when he comes, he will come as a mighty warrior and a glorious redeemer. A mighty warrior wielding his powerful judgment upon all evil and evildoers. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, never-ending pain and affliction. They who have rejected Jesus and his good news will on that day know what it is like to be rejected by Jesus himself. After a lifetime of common grace upon them. Common grace, I've heard, I think it's Charles Spurgeon who said, the rain falls and it falls on the grass and the rocks. So as God's grace Sunny days fall upon all humanity. Good weather. Children are given to all humanity. Jobs, homes, a marriage. A cool breeze can be enjoyed by the lost man who hates God and is out there fishing and God gives him a, a food, some food to eat and a cool breeze and shade. But on that day, there will be no more sunny days. The common grace is removed. It's no longer falling upon the grass and the rocks. The rocks will know the scorching drought of God's wrath on that day. No more pleasure to be indulged in. No more taking God's good gifts and design and, and cursing God and using it for in idolatrous ways. On that day, all the grace 
All the grace for the lost will be removed. All the life-giving presence of the Lord and His beautiful glory that's made visible in daily creation and upon all humanity will cease for them on that day. Instead of being in the presence of His glorious grace, they will be in the presence of His furious wrath. My, oh my. But He'll also come as a glorious Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Paul says that for those who have believed, those who have heard the same gospel that was rejected and counted as foolishness by others. Yet they, they hear this word and received it as life-giving good news. And for them, Jesus, as glorious Redeemer, will bring upon them the fullness of joy and long-awaited relief. He, he will finish what He started He will save his people to the uttermost. We'll no longer see in part. Think about that day, precious saints. Think about that day. We will will no longer see in part. The fullness of his glory will be made visible as we behold him face to face. And we will marvel at him, we're told. That's what Paul says. We'll marvel at him. And why? Why will we marvel? Why will we marvel? Because his beauty and might, and glory, and grace that we will behold on that day when we have lived a life of being rejected by the world and yet now received by the King of heaven, the Lamb and the Lion, received into His arms, it will be far greater than anything we could ever have imagined. Think about that, precious saint. That, that is to be the anchor of your heart. What awaits me? I don't have to fear affliction today. I don't have to run away from it necessarily. It doesn't mean necessarily we're running to it all the time. It doesn't mean I'm just carelessly going. We don't have to be afraid of it. Look what awaits the precious believer. And here's, here's what I, I really do think. As I, as I pondered upon that day, and I'll just tell you, there was a moment as I'm writing the sermon and just here in this, in this moment, I'm just broken. That this, this, the reality, I, I really think on that day, there will be this reality that for the redeemed, for those in Christ who have been brought to saving faith in Him, I really do believe that on that day, we will be freshly aware that we don't deserve what we've received. I really think that. I really think that that day we'll see the blinding glory of Jesus and we'll be able to behold him freshly. But I think it will result in, at first, a fresh awareness that I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve you, Jesus. I don't deserve this. I think we will be freshly aware that it is all a work of grace that left to ourselves. You know what I deserve? I deserve what they are receiving. Revelation 20 paints this picture. It's this picture of the, the great white throne and the final days, at least as this earth knows it. And it says, All the dead, all will come and stand before the judgment of God. And it says that every book for every single person will be opened, 
every book of, a, of, an, of an account of life, an account of deeds, and it will be read aloud. And I think in those moments, we'll be freshly aware of what I deserve. Oh my, as I hear every single moment read out, oh my, I deserve to be there. But then, do you know what we're told? Do you remember? What we're told is that in those moments, another book will be opened. A glorious book will be opened. A book that God himself calls the Lamb's book of life. And that book will be opened. And the names in that book will be read aloud. And brothers and sisters, I can't help but hear, I can't help but think upon that day, the relief in our hearts once again that says, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Whenever the name is read aloud and forgiven is declared next to the name. Oh. And I think in those very moments, precious saints, I think we will, we will be freshly aware. I deserve that. But by grace, my name is written there. And we will turn to our Savior and behold his lovely face and his blood-washed linen, and we will sing his sovereign grace. Precious saints, I'll tell you, I can't wait for that day. The Christian... is meant to root their faith in that eternity, to long for that day. That your mind would be rooted in eternity, those precious truths of eternity. That your heart would be rooted in the precious truths of what awaits you. And your soul would be undergirded by these precious truths. And you're not to move on from it. Paul closes with a prayer for God's precious people. Verses 11 through 12 in closing, very short. We see God's power the Christians resolve in Christ's glory. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. And it's not just going and being evangelistic champions on the street, it's being a faithful mom. It's being a faithful dad and a husband.
that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And the most amazing words, and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer of Paul for the Christian in the desert awaiting that most glorious day is that the God who saves us would sustain us. We've heard that. We've heard that the last several weeks. That God who saves us would sustain us and by his great power he would enable us in the here and now of the desert life to fulfill every resolve of good and every work of faith so that our King Jesus would be glorified not just when he returns, but here and now. So precious saints, whatever I encounter, whatever trial, whatever affliction, whatever my lot, my heart, may your heart, may our hearts by his power be set upon the hope of the King coming. My soul assured, may your soul be assured in his righteous justice. Your mind fixed upon eternity with him and your life lived, rooted in him to declare the precious glory of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.